This episode is brought to you by our incredible community of listener supporters on Patreon. Our Patreon offers listeners exclusive archival content, extended episodes, and access to community conversations diving deeper with past guests. Your monthly pledge ensures that For the Wild has the funding to keep producing informative, thoughtful, and rooted conversations and programming. All funding supports our small team of creatives, podcast production, and special For the Wild projects like our zines and slow study courses. To support us on Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash for the wild, or if you would rather make a one-time donation or recurring donation outside of Patreon, please visit for the wild.world slash donate. Hey everyone, Molly here, media director of For the Wild, and I'm here with your weekly reminder to subscribe to Drip. Drip is our ongoing crowdfunding campaign that allows you, our beloved listener, to subscribe on a monthly basis to support our podcast. If everyone listening to this episode values it at just $1, we'd reach our crowdfunding goals overnight. So head on over to our Drip page, which is d.rip backslash four dash the dash wild to support the podcast. Thank you so much and enjoy the episode. It's really interesting because I feel like a lot of people don't see the lens of what Canada's really like versus what they're actually doing on the ground and what they're doing to our people and to our people's rights on a daily basis. The silence is broken by somebody crying Trying to be heard, never a word Always the attitude, sort out your own Always alone, wishing for something The world is denying Out in the wilderness, somebody's crying Somebody wishing for something to happen Wishing to tell, wishing to help Someone was listening, someone who cared Never despaired Someone to lean on and someone to trust Who needs your assistance and finds your disgust Hello and welcome to For the Wild podcast. I'm Ayana Young. Today we are speaking with Heather Milton Lightning. Heather has over 20 years of organizing experience from local to international campaigns. She originates from the Great Plains region of Turtle Island and Treaty 4 territory. Heather is a founder of Native Youth Movement and Aboriginal Youth with Initiative Inc., an organization based on the Anishinaabe clan system. Heather worked for the Indigenous Environmental Network for many years and as national youth organizer. She is a former member of the United Nations Environment Program's Youth Advisory and has extensive experience in lobbying internationally through the United Nations systems on Indigenous peoples' rights. She is a former advisory board member of the Funding Exchange Saguara Fund and Honor the Earth. She helped build the Indigenous Peoples' Power Project 
through the Ruckus Society that trains Indigenous communities on nonviolent direct action. She currently is the volunteer director of the Indigenous Tar Sands Campaign. Wow, thank you, Heather, and, you know, welcome. We just want to welcome you to For the Wild. Awesome. It's great to be here. So I'd like to begin this interview by really extending our deepest gratitude to you and for organizers and frontline activists like you, you know, especially given the recent sentencing of water protector Red Fawn, who has been sentenced to nearly five years in prison following her arrest at Standing Rock. We must remember that the work being done by frontline activists exposes them to great risks in terms of their freedom, safety, and well-being, all in order to protect Earth, which we all depend on. So thank you so much, Heather, for all the work you do and taking this time to be with us today. Awesome. It's great to be here. So in the past couple of years, we have been overwhelmed by an onslaught of proposed or partially completed fossil fuel projects across Turtle Island, from Keystone, XL, Dapel, the Bayou Bridge Pipeline, Line 3, and the Kinder Morgan Trans Mountain Pipeline, and that's just to name a few. I imagine some of our listeners may be unfamiliar with the specifics of corporate extraction and industry dynamics in Canada in relationship to First Nations people. So I'd love if you could begin by sharing with us what has been occurring in your territory most recently and the status of petrocolonialism across Canada more broadly. Um, okay, so those are kind of big questions. Um, I'm located in Treaty 4, which is exactly, I would say I live seven hours north of Standing Rock. So we're in Treaty 4, we have the northern far part of the Balkan deposit. So in the southern part of our territory, you'll see a lot of oil wells. You'll see some fracking towers. It's not quite as extensive as the development on the, the North Dakota side, but because it's, of course, like a section of that deposit, but that's a big chunk of the development in the southern part of our region. Secondarily to that is there's, we've been doing a lot of coal mining since the 1800s. And of course, we have industrial farming and, and small farming. Those are normal things that exist around here since settlement occurred, because of course, it's the prairie region. Some other things that exist in our territory we have quite a few potash deposits, and we have one of the biggest ones in North America that exists here, and it's a big, giant vein. Luckily for us, potash hasn't gone up in price, so we're not seeing the expansion of these mines, but it, it's something that really has an impact on the water table here. And then north of us, of course, we have in the northern part of Saskatchewan and in, in Treaty 6 territory and further north is a giant uranium deposit. It's one of the biggest ones in the globe that's being developed right now and has been for several years. And we also have tar sands. That's one of the fun things that people don't realize is that the tar sands deposit right now, for the most part, is being developed and extracted from in Alberta. But the deposit itself actually stretches all the way to Manitoba. I think the challenge with the companies is that they don't have the technology to extract it so deeply. I think the other thing that we have is a lot of forestry and other kinds of mining further further north, not necessarily in this Treaty 4 territory, but in places further north. So there's a lot going on in this territory, but I think it's, it's indicative of all the prairie provinces. It's very similar, similar kind of development, similar things going on. Um, I think some of the major challenges we have is just the impact of this kind of, these kinds of development on our watershed. 
being that we're in the prairie provinces, that's going to be one of the things that's going to be really challenging in the next 20 to 50 years is the impact of climate change in our region and what that means for water. And I think we're looking at significant and severe drought in our territories. And, you know, the fine balance between resource extraction and what we see in the future means that we potentially are putting our, our ability to have potable drinking water at risk if we continue to develop at the same rate that we're, we are, because we're not getting enough snow, pack melt, there's just not enough feeding into our water system and we're heavily dependent on aquifers here. And, you know, when you mix aquifers with mining, there's always a chance that they're going to get um, contaminated. So, you know, it's all a fine balance in this region about all of these different issues. When we start talking about the state of, of Canada oil development, I don't think a lot has really changed. And I think that's the thing that people really need to understand is that Canada has come out on the world stage as being a leader in terms of climate change. When Justin Trudeau, our, our new prime minister, got into power, that's one of the things that he created was a new ministry on climate change. And so the government moved forward with creating the pan-Canadian framework, which is basically Canada's plan about how they're going to combat climate change and what are the things that they're going to do to mitigate and to adapt to climate change. And so it's really interesting. It's this massive document. Um, I've looked at different pieces of it myself and we've done some research on it. But it's really interesting that oil and gas development are not really listed in this document. They're kind of left out of the plans about how we're going to combat climate change in Canada. And it's really interesting that it was kind of left out on purpose or forgotten or we don't really know why. Um, but I think it, it just speaks volumes to the fact that this government kind of wants to tell us that they're doing all of these things, but at the same time, we're not doing anything to prevent what's creating global climate change and our role in, in emissions of global climate change. And I think that's also one of the biggest challenges that we have because, you know, we have traditional oil and gas development, like I was talking about the Balkan deposit, you know, there's that oil and gas development in the southern part of Alberta and all across the country. But I think... What's significant is also tar sands. And so when you combine all of those things together, we're actually emitting a lot into the global atmosphere in terms of CO2 emissions. And so we're going way over the, the Kyoto agreements and all these other things that Canada has said that we're going to do. Unfortunately, we can't if we're continuing to develop at the rate we are. And I think that's also the challenge for a lot of people doing work around climate in Canada is really trying to hold the government accountable. One of the things that Saskatchewan, specifically the province that I live in, has been doing is fighting against creating a, a carbon tax. And so, you know, the government has been moving ahead with this, these different projects that they're doing to mitigate climate change. And this is one of them, is creating a monetary system to tax emitters. So Saskatchewan definitely has fought against that. Not all the provinces have. Some of them are really uh, excited about this program. I think it's just really challenging when we're trying to talk about national solutions because we need them and we need to uphold the agreements that we've we've made internationally. But then when you start looking at the provinces, you know, Canada bought out a pipeline project that didn't make any sense. The companies couldn't make a go of it, and so Canada decided to buy it. And I think these are also the challenges that we have in Canada. Again, going back to this idea that we look great on the international stage in terms of our climate agreements and all the other things that we're saying and doing. However, when it comes down to it, 
we're not essentially, you know, we're more part of the problem than we are part of solving the problem. I think that's also the challenge. Just, I believe, yesterday and over the weekend, Kanahus Manuel, uh, one of the leaders of the tiny house movement in BC to stop the Kinder Morgan pipeline, they set up a camp and have been developing tiny houses for quite a while. And I'm sure you can talk to her yourself, but her whole group was arrested this weekend for being in a public place, which they they never signed treaties. They never made any agreements in their territory with the government or with British Columbia as a province. So technically, the land is still held by the, the Sequoia people. And so I think that's just indicate of the way Canada treats its Indigenous people. You know, in our country, for the last few years, we've had the Truth and Reconciliation recommendations, and there's been this whole movement around reconciliation and, and this idea of what that would look like between Indigenous and non-Indigenous people in Canada. I think the biggest challenge to that, though, is is just really, if we're going to meet this idea and, and try and, and move towards something that looks like reconciliation, then it means that 98.8% of the land is held either by corporations, the Canadian government, or it's held by Crown land or private owners. So the 0.2% is held in trust for Indigenous people, right? So we only have access to 0.2% of our, our original land that we agreed to share. And in some places, in like Kanahus's case, her people didn't make any agreement with the Canadian government. They just took it, right? And they believe that they have every right to title to the resources on the land without consulting, without working with the people, without even creating any kind of legal instrument. And so I think it's really challenging in Canada. There's a lot of different things at play, particularly in British Columbia. Like I was speaking about Canada's people, there are a lot of people in that region that live in unseceded territory where there are no agreements. But the one thing that I will say that we've been, I think, very... I don't know what the word is, but we've been able over the last 20 years to move forward with a lot of Supreme Court challenges and really holding the Canadian government to account in the constitution that Canada has. It talks, section 35 talks about the right for Indigenous people to hunt and fish. And so we've been using that as a way to challenge the Canadian government when they infringe on our treaty rights or on our rights and title, as in Kanahus's case, when there is no agreement. And so I think these things have been really, really, really instrumental for us in Canada in particular to hold the Canadian government to account, but also to hold the companies to account, because I think we've been moving completely in the opposite direction instead of moving towards our climate agreements, but also trying to figure out how we're going to transition to a more green environment, a more green economy, and all these other things. So it's really interesting because I feel like a lot of people don't see the lens of what Canada's really like versus what they're actually doing on the ground and what they're doing to our people and to our people's rights on a daily basis. Mm. Wow, thank you so much. You just opened up so many threads that I want to go down. One being, um, you mentioned the uh, Canada buying out this pipeline. And this past year, the Trudeau administration has revealed its alliance to industry and just blatant disregard of the legal rights of First Nations people. Back in June, the Trudeau government announced they would be purchasing the Kinder Morgan pipeline for $4.5 billion Canadian dollars with the intention of nationalizing the project and expanding it, like you had mentioned. Some have suggested that the Trump 
administration has covertly enabled the actions of Trudeau. But I'm curious if you believe Trump has greatly influenced the Trudeau administration when it comes to resource extraction. I think that's that may be true. But personally, I like to look at things from a historical lens. And to me, like the the whole reason that the colonial machine was created, regardless of what territory you're in, whether we're talking about Africa or Russia or Asia or South America or North America, was resources. People came here for the land, for the fish, for the trees, for whatever made sense at that period in time. And that hasn't changed. And I think that's the thing that we've always said about Canada, is that Canada is a resource extraction economy. That's what it's based on. We have no other viable options um, in terms of economic development as a country as a whole. So I think that's the challenge with the Trudeau government is that I really feel like we haven't been 110% exploring what a transitional economy could look like in Canada. I know there's been a lot of movement in the financial sector and a lot of different places all over the globe are researching what this could look like. And I think that's the thing that I'm excited about is just the, the potentiality for our own people to lead a green economy. In particular in this region, we're super cold in the wintertime, but we have tons of sunlight. We have tons of wind power. We just have a lot of ability to create energy in a much different way and to really think about the lens of justice when we start talking about economic and energy justice, right? So I think there's a lot of potentiality. I just really am am critical of this government, but I've also been critical of past governments. I really don't feel like Canada is very similar to the U.S. in in the fact that we've pretty much had a two-party system since the existence of this country. And because of that, if you, if you again, because I like to look at things from a historical lens, um, neither of these parties have, when they've been in power in Canada, have ever 110% upheld Indigenous rights. They've never upheld treaty rights. They've never been champions of our people, and they've never worked with us in a re- nation-to-nation relationship in a way that's truly 110% equitable. And I think that's the thing that we always remember, is is that... These countries make promises to our people when they're in an electoral process, right? The fruits of those labors we don't necessarily always see. And I think the challenge with all of this is that Canada, again, is a resource extraction colony. They don't have any other viable options in in terms of economic development. And I think that's the real challenge of, of our day and age. It's really trying to figure our way out of this mess. And building the infrastructure and the businesses, whether whatever models those look like, in communities that will dig our way out of being so dependent on oil and gas development, in particular the tar sands development. And I think it's really unfortunate that Canahus and the communities that she's working with in British Columbia and all across this country have to put themselves in situations where they're being arrested and they have to live in the right of way of a pipeline in order to stop it. And that's the unfortunate thing that that we're dealing with in Canada. I really don't feel like Trump had a lot of influence because the previous government, the same thing, everyone co-development. And when I look at my province here in Saskatchewan, again, a lot of people really believe the rhetoric because there's no other options that have been presented to the general public. And I think that's part of the challenge is that We need a new platform. We need a new methodology. We need a new messaging to think about 
a global transition about green economies and about really getting off the oil and gas development type of resource extraction economies. I really feel like these are old school ways of doing business and we can be innovative and creative and figure our way out of this. We just need we need some new life. Um, and I believe there's a lot of people out there doing amazing work. It's just that the old school way of thinking about getting rich quick off the oil and gas companies is unfortunate. And it's it's prevalent all across the country, even I would say with a lot of my own people. So, you know, there's a lot of challenges. And I just think that in the history of this country, that's kind of what it's always been about, is about taking the land and taking the resources and making money off of that for profit. And so I don't think that's really changed. States, although Trump is hmm, quite outspoken <laughs> as a really kind way to put it, not a lot has changed in my mind either. I don't think that all of a sudden now that Trump's in office, policy has really shifted or resource extraction has really shifted. I think it has been this way and it's just more blatant than it was before. We don't have as good of a speaker who's uh, getting on the televisions as there was before, who is as eloquent. So I, I'm with you there that um, this is nothing new. And I want to mention that here in the United States, the Trump administration has encouraged state-sanctioned attacks on environmental activists, as well as the introduction of legislation that seeks to criminalize peaceful protest. Since Trump was elected, more than 60 bills have been introduced across 31 states that seek to restrict protest. For example, in Colorado, State Senator Jerry Sonnenberg proposed a law that would reclassify the obstruction or the obstructing or tampering with oil and gas equipment from a misdemeanor to a class six felony, punishable up to 18 months behind bars and a fine of up to $100,000. And he isn't the only one. I mean, in October of 2017, 80 Republicans and four Democrats sent a letter to Attorney General Sessions asking whether activists who target energy infrastructure might be considered domestic terrorists, arguing that the interference of energy infrastructure poses a, quote, threat to human life and appears to be intended to intimidate and coerce policy changes, uh, end quote. So it's clear that as the fossil fuel industry struggles to retain its firm grasp, the United States government is leading an aggressive campaign to suppress indigenous and environmental movements. 
So I'm wondering, are policies like this being adopted in Canada? And what is the climate around direct action in Canada look like? Well, I think two things that I'll say to that. First off, there was a, a host of legislation that was passed um, before Trudeau got into power with our previous prime minister. And it created a, a whole new secret police, just a lot of things that potentially violate human rights and a gamut of other things. And so my understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong, but this legislation still stands. It hasn't been thrown out. Um, it's still kind of in the mix. I, I think the thing to think about, and I think what's really interesting is that, you know, Standing Rock was this moment, particularly in the U.S., where people seen the violence of the police state and the military against Indigenous people, whereas in Canada, that's been going on for a very long period of time. You know, in 1990, there was a standoff in Oka over, how would you put it, there was... There's a cemetery out there and there's burial grounds and the non-native community wanted to create a golf course and they wanted to take out the pines and take out the, the burial site. And of course people reacted and it became a military standoff and it was the biggest military standoff with native people in, in the country's history. And that was in 1990, which was probably what, 20, 30 years ago. But this has continued to happen all across the country, whether it's in remote communities, whether it's in urban communities. We've seen a lot of people get arrested. And like I was speaking earlier about Kanahus, she's been in jail numerous times for defending the land. And there are so many people I know all across the country. Another good um, example is the Algonquins of Ardoch, where their whole chief and council got thrown in jail for six to nine months, all of them. And this is their federally recognized leadership. So it really, you know, Canada has, has always had a very contestuous relationship with Aboriginal people. There are national Aboriginal organizations that work very closely with the federal government trying to create policies and so on. But then there are also community grassroots people that don't want their land destroyed by oil and gas companies or mining or forestry or, or whatever it is that will fight back and we'll do that with a variety of different tactics. And that's often when we've seen arrests, when we've seen the brutality of the state trying to assert its power over indigenous people. And I think that's the thing that's also that stands in the back of my mind. And I think of the majority of land defenders that I know is that, you know, we have a right to do what we're doing. We have the right to exist. And regardless of which government comes and goes and, tries to create itself on our land that will always be here. And there's a deep power in that. And I think that's the thing that really is a threat to the state is that Indigenous people do have a right to the land. And if, if we were really talking about true reconciliation, Canada would have to reconcile the fact that they stole 98.2% of the land. And so would its citizens. And that's, I don't think we're ever going to see that. I think that's something that's a colonial theme across the world, whether we're talking about Palestine or places in Africa and South America, like the states that colonize places never want to apologize, but they also never want to give the land back because that means they admit that they did something wrong. And that may also roll out a whole conversation about reparations and a whole gamut of other things. So, you know, I, I don't necessarily see that happening. 
I think that's just the thing that I wanted to clarify is that, you know, we've always had issues with the police. It hasn't been as public as it was in Standing Rock, but there have always been crackdowns on activists for a long, long time. And I think it's really interesting. Again, going back to this idea of history, we have been monitored since the RCMP were created. And the whole reason the Royal, I'm talking about the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, they were created because of the whole conflict between settlers trying to come out here and create farms, build homesteads and so on. And the native people that were here in our territories that were trying to survive. If you really understand the historical role of the police in Canada and the reason they were created, then you understand that there's always been that conflict, this idea of Indian wars. And that hasn't necessarily changed. You know, I think Canada really has to, again, protect its resource extraction economy. And the only thing that really stands in the way is Indigenous people and Indigenous rights in Canada. And those that are willing to stand up for it, which are the people like Hanahus and um, Judy De Silva's and Christy Swain's and all these people all across Canada that are willing to do that. But they know full and well that when you do that, that does mean that potentially you're going to have to deal with the police. You're going to have to deal with things like arrests, which is really unfortunate. You've mentioned Standing Rock a few times, and it's been over two years mm-hmm. since the beginning of the No Dapple grassroots movement. And during this time, you were a direct action trainer with Indigenous Peoples Power Project at Oshete Sakon Camp. And given the time that has passed, I was hoping you could share your reflections on this movement and you know, perhaps some of the lessons that you learned. I think it, I will be 100% honest. When I left Standing Rock, I, I took some time off, but I was also really angry. And I think it wasn't so much about like the violations or, or all of the other stuff that was happening. It was more about the fact that like we just couldn't get our shit together. Um, I don't know how to explain that any other, any other way. It's just that, you know, a lot of times we really... We really needed to come together more than what we did. And I felt like I was a part of the problem sometimes. And, you know, that comes back to, you know, you get older, you get an ego, you think you know things. And I think that that's really important to always keep that in check. And that's tough sometimes um, because we get older, we think that we know things, right? So that's, you know, some personal reflection I had. Um, I think it was really awesome that we could come out and be there to support it's also really challenging, like as a as an organization, you know, one of our agreements that we had amongst all our trainers and the founders and so on is that we were not a political organization. So even though all of us had opinions about what we thought should happen and blah, 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 the reality is, is that we were there to play a role in supporting whatever was going on in the best way that we thought that we could. I think the second part to that is just that if we're going to work with a community, we generally try to take leadership from the community itself and whoever's leading. And I think that's also a challenge for us is that the leadership was always in flux and there was always something going on. So that made it interesting for us as outsiders trying to respect the leadership and what was going on. And also just really understanding that we might be really feeling uh, very, I don't know what the word is, but really invested, I guess, in the struggle but always being mindful of the fact that we weren't from there and that in the long term, there are consequences for all the actions that we take and to be very mindful of what those consequences were. And, you know, we all lose sight of those things in the moment, get caught up in things and don't think about it. And I think that was one of the things that I definitely learned 
from Ellen Gabriel. And when she was talking, she was a lead negotiator uh, during the Oka crisis in 1990. And she's someone that I really respect. And, you know, we were just visiting one time and, and she was saying, you know, when people came here, because people came to Oka from all over the country, it was the biggest thing. And a lot of Native people came from all over, like the U.S. included, to stand with them against the Canadian military. But she said, you know, once people left, that was when things got really difficult. And it really made me think about how we go to support communities, especially if we're not from there, if there's something big happening, and how do we leave in a good way where the there's not things left for the community to deal with. And I think that's also a real challenge with a place like Standing Rock because the camp got so big. There was, there was so much going on. And I think when there's ever a conflict, of course, the media tries to play a role in that. They don't always tell the stories accurately. There's misinformation that gets out there and a variety of different things. But oftentimes we see escalated racism, acts along with that racism and a whole bunch of other things that the community has to deal with after the fact. And I think that's the one thing that Ellen stressed to me to really be mindful of is that, you know, this might be a really amazing moment, but the community is the one that's left there at the end of the day. And to always be really cognizant of that. And I don't know that personally that I did a great job of that, but it's also something that I really feel like is really important as these things continue to happen and these frontline struggles continue to happen. It's really just working with the leaders that are there being there to support them, to take direction from that community in the best way that you can, and to respect the fact that you're not from there and that at some day you can go home or go on to the next day, whatever it is, but the people that live there are definitely left with cleaning up the pieces but also trying to move forward into the future. And so how do we orientate ourselves with that? I think it's a really important thing to think about. I think some of the good things that happened most definitely were just people really understanding the connection and the strategy piece, I think, with the finance sector was really important. There was a lot of really interesting conversations and debates that we had amongst ourselves just around strategy. And I think that's also really important. And things that we have learned from doing a lot of work in the tar sands is that it's really important to have people from the local community speaking to the issue. Like those of us that are from other places, that's, that's fine and dandy, but we really need to highlight the voices of the communities that we're working with. I think the second piece of that is just really figuring out who has the power to give us what we want. You know, I think it's interesting that this conversation kind of started off with, that we're having with, with thinking about uh, Trudeau and, and Trump. But I think one of the things that we've learned over the years is that that might have been a really good strategy 20 years ago or maybe 50 years ago is that the country's held a lot of power. Um, in terms of policy and in terms of what happens on the ground and all these other things. And I think for the most part, a lot of that has changed with globalization, with the rise of the corporation. And I think that's one of the things that we really figured out with the tar sands is really trying to figure out who owns these companies, who has power in these companies, where does the money flow, who's investing in these projects, who's underwriting them, who are the bankers behind them and targeting all of these moving parts because these are the people that essentially have power. And I think even when we look at a global scale, we know that the corporations are in many times controlling elections. They're in cahoots in a lot of different ways in, in our lives that we don't even realize. And I think that's the thing that strategy has definitely changed, I would say, over the last 30 years is that 
we're not necessarily just targeting the, co- the country, like say Canada, for example, or the United States. We're not just lobbying to have policy changed or, or all of these other things, but we're also targeting now the corporations and the boards and CEOs of these corporations, but we're also targeting the financiers that, that fund these projects, right? And I think, you know, one of the things that probably would have been really strategic and a few people did it was targeting the board of directors of DAPL and targeting the board of directors of the major banks that were funding these projects. So those are the things that we've really come to understand over the last couple of years is that, you know, we really have to have some conversations about power, about strategy, and who has the ability to actually make decisions that will give us what we want. And when I say give us what we want is like, for example, like shutting down DAPL, who had, who had the power to actually stop projects and trying to figure that out. Because I think there's a variety of different things that you're going to want to do in a campaign and direct action is one of those things. The lawsuits are really important. The lobbying that needs to happen, the finance campaigns, getting the public educated and all these different moving parts. And so, you know, for a lot of us that do training, particularly around direct action, direct action is a way to build power, to pressure your target. And your target, again, is that person who has the ability to give you what, what you want. And we always say it's a person. And I think that's also really important. It's just figuring out all these moving parts to figure out that strategy. Who is that person that you want to target, you know, and pressure? And maybe that was at the time Obama, or maybe at the time that was the Department of the Interior or, or whatever it was at the time. But learning from a lot of the, the movement elders that we have, from folks that have been doing this work for a long time, you know, we see things slowly changing and evolving over time. But I think those are some of the really key things that we've learned. And again, I think that's one of the things that Indigenous people were really lucky that we have institutional memory that it's not just me remembering my significant 20 years in life, but it's also having the memories of the Casey camps and other people that we're working with that have another 20, 20 years of memory to add to that and that are willing to sit with us and talk with us about the strategies that they've used and the tactics that they used and what worked and what didn't work. That to me is, is one of the most valuable resources we have. And I think you know, we were talking earlier about the Protecting Mother Earth gathering and just how important it is for us to gather and share the tactics that we've used, the strategies that we used, what's working with what company, with what land struggle, and all those other things. Because those, it not only builds our spirit to be together, but it also gives us the opportunity to really share some of the strategies that we really need to learn from each other in this present time about what's working. So those are some of the things that I feel like were really important things that I learned. And some of them were just lessons learned that maybe not what not to do.
That was so informative how you described all the different levels of interpersonal, personal, local, uh, global, uh, gosh, um, all the different tactics that really go into supporting a movement to be successful in getting what you want. It's really, really invaluable knowledge that you just shared. And, um, you know, as you were talking about people who are coming into movements that it's not their land, it's not their territory, it's not their home. They don't have to deal with the repercussions of, uh, you know, well, it's not to say, because in a sense, we are all dealing with repercussions in terms of climate change. But at the same token, somebody who doesn't live there, who stay there even for six months, they can then go home to their respective home. And they're not faced with so much of the um, consequences of what happened. And I also kind of in a little bit of the same train of thought another question about working together and i guess like what i'm thinking of is in the wake of no dapple over 800 people were charged with crimes over a period of 11 months and ip3 states that quote as indigenous peoples are most at risk in terms of intimidation surveillance and state repression it is imperative to have indigenous trainers steering the action end quote so I'm curious about who you think should occupy the front lines. You know, I've heard some indigenous land protectors call allies, especially white folks, to be at the front, whereas other point to the fact that movements like No Dapple are about indigenous sovereignty and therefore must be native-led. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on that and, um, you know, what comes up for you in that question. Honestly, it's a case-by-case situation because I, I think not all actions are going to be the same not all situations are going to be the same and to give a really good example like there there was an action I believe it was in Navajo Nation where a bunch of grandmas decided that they were the ones that were going to stop these trucks from coming in and hauling in equipment and they put themselves out in the front line and so the picture in the paper was of these Navajo grannies getting arrested and Part of the reason their justification was is that they didn't want their young people to be the ones getting arrested because they wanted their young people not to have records and all these other things. And so in that situation for them, they were the ones that wanted to take that risk, right? I think in some situations, people get arrested because they just got arrested. Like there wasn't no, there wasn't time for planning. There wasn't, it just, something happened, people reacted, right? And I think in a lot of situations in Standing Rock with actions that was the case, is that something happened, people reacted, they went out there to the front lines, and a lot of folks got hurt, they got arrested, they got pepper sprayed, the list goes on. In other situations, it makes more sense to have allies, other brown folks, settlers, uh, non-native folks, be the ones getting arrested. It really is situational to get this idea of strategy, right? Because I think one of the things that's really important that Direct action is a tool in a toolbox, right? And so if you're trying to stop a pipeline or if you're trying to stop a logging, there's a variety of things that you're doing all at once, right? 
you're trying to educate the general public. You're trying to build leadership with with your own folks in your own community to to work on on stopping the logging trucks or, or whatever it issue it is you're working on. There might be you might be doing lobbying. You might be writing letters to I don't know MPs or band counselors or whoever else has power in, in that area in your community. You know, you might be targeting the company who owns the logging trucks. You might be targeting the government because they signed the lease for this deal without consenting your people. Like, there's just so many moving parts to a campaign. It takes some thinking and some thought through to, to, to get to the sweet point where you're realizing, like, this is the sweet spot and this is where we're going to do some action because it makes the most sense because this person's our target and this is what they're doing. And so it's not always easy. And I think... As trainers, that's kind of our job is to help people figure that out. There's a lot of strategists that have a lot of different thoughts. And regardless of of whether or not people think allies should be at the front lines or people think it should be led by Indigenous people or a mix of both or everyone has a role or regardless of of what that decision looks like. At the end of the day, it goes back to that idea about, you know, the community that's directly impacted by whatever issue or whatever is going on is the one kind of taking the lead in terms of making some of these decisions or giving some direction. And I think that's really key is, is as long as those, those kind of, I don't know if the word protocol or whatever you want to call it are respected, then I, I think that's going to be really key for how those actions play out. So I don't, I personally don't think there's a right or wrong answer to this. I think it's it all it's dependent on what the community wants to do, what makes sense at the time, and whether or not it's really strategic and where they're trying to get themselves, right? So that's a pretty convoluted answer, but I'm just, I'm just trying to break it down a little bit, sorry. No, it was actually really clear, and I think it makes a lot of sense that it's a case-by-case basis. And in this conversation, you've talked about the tiny house warriors, and I want to ask a question on that. So from what I understand, the tiny house warriors movement is a form of direct action that simultaneously offers a hopeful model and solution and a new narrative that is in support of life and indigenous autonomy. So would you characterize direct action as a form of healing for indigenous peoples? Have you seen direct action encourage healing and self-respect individually or on a community level? Well, I think it also depends on how how you frame what direct action is, because to me, it's it's so big, you know, and I think the one thing that, that at least in Canada, when, when I say direct action, people automatically think of roadblocks or they think of like round dances in the street and protests and rallies and things like that, but they don't really see it as like a direct action could be building a community garden um, that supplies food for your neighborhood in leftover pieces of land that no one's using in your neighborhood. I think one of the things that a story I heard was around the original KXL pipeline struggle was that these indigenous corn seeds that were found in a bundle that was, I think like they were 500 years old or something crazy like that, but they're indigenous corn seeds that come, that belong to one of the tribes that's originally from the Nebraska area. And so somehow, I don't know the details of the story too much, but what I can tell you is that those seeds got planted in the pipeline right of way. And that was a way for the seeds to come home, but also like to do an action to plant them in the right way of the pipeline. And I know it kind of sounds a little convoluted, but it's actually a really big deal that the fact that these seeds were found 
and if they've been gone for such a long period of time, and planting them in the original place where they come from is really symbolic, but it's also like that's an action, you know, in itself. I think when we talk about this idea of of reconciliation for Indigenous people, a lot of times that's like midwifery. It's having babies in in a traditional way. That's reclaiming the gender spectrum beyond just men and women in our communities and creating space for everyone, regardless of how they identify. It's creating wind turbines and, and building, I don't know, renewable homes. It's, it's so many different things that direct action can be. And I think that's the fine balance is that we have to figure out there's a need for those those people to be at the front lines because these, com- these companies and corporations are still doing the things that they're doing. And our countries like Canada and the U.S. are still allowing for this to happen. But at the same time, there's also a need for for the building and the renewal and the resurgence of indigeneity, regardless of what that looks like in in different communities, and that's going to happen in different ways. And I think the thing that's really beautiful, I think, is just seeing a lot of our young people being so creative about this resurgence of indigeneity in our communities, whether that's writing or art or even things like fashion design and beadwork, the resurgence of language. And I think that's also really exciting. You know, the practicing of our ceremonies, the interweaving of our ceremonies, in, in all different ways. And it's really interesting in a modern day and age how that's being portrayed in, in a digital era. You know, we're starting to see things like film and another short films and, and things on the internet and just the different ways that we're telling our story and evolving our culture. And so, you know, there's a role for that that's super significant that I don't think we talk about in the same way that we, we to some degree in some movements, glamorize actions. But it should be as glamorous, you know, and, and as, 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 in, as important because I really don't feel like if you take something out of the system, you have to replace it with something. And in our movement, we want to replace it with something that's beautiful, that's healthy, and that's a reflection of, of where we want to move. And I think that's the one thing that I'm really thankful that, you know, I got to spend time with movement elders because they really kind of drilled it into our heads that as young people, our responsibility was to be better than them and to take their work to the next step. And I feel that way a lot for a lot of the young people that I see now, that they're they're doing really amazing things. And they're so creative and so innovative. And they're speaking a language. And they're just really doing amazing things. And I think that's the thing that, that makes me feel good about all these actions and all the other things that we're doing that might be really negative is, is, the, is that fine balance. And so in the long term, that, that's kind of what I think about it, if that makes sense. Hmm. Thank you. And, you know, you've been organizing for over 20 years and just being able to have so much to share with us, I just want to say thank you. And, you know, during this time, you, you could have transitioned to working with large scale NGOs or big green, but you didn't. And I'm wondering if you could explain the nuances of why you never went to Big Green and what is the importance of supporting grassroots movements over NGOs, especially in regards to climate justice? Well, I wouldn't say I'm necessarily against it. I did work for Greenpeace for, I think, three or four months. I think it was just really challenging at the time because Greenpeace was just newly beginning to understand its own role that it had 
and why Indigenous people were so upset with the organization and really having a thought process internally about what that would look like. And so they've made some changes, and I think that's good, you know. I'm not sure really how to answer that question because I go back and forth about it a lot because I feel like, you know, I definitely supported Indigenous Climate Action, which is the organization that Errol Duranje founded, who is one of the main activists and organizers who's from the Athabasca Chippewan First Nation, who's 100 kilometers away from the open pit tar sands mines, right? And so the work that she's doing is really awesome. It's really important and it's really needed in Canada. There's no other organization that's Indigenous that is doing work on climate. And so I think that's important. I think the challenge with, with the Greens, it goes back a long time. And it used to be this whole thing, like I would say 30, 40 years ago, where they would hear about an issue in Indian country and they would come and take pictures of us. They interview maybe some elders, maybe some leaders, and they go away and they, they'd run a campaign on behalf of the community, but without ever working with the community. And so I think that's the thing. We've definitely, for sure, 110% with the Tar Sands campaign, worked really hard to hold space for Indigenous leadership from the communities that are right in the zone of extraction of the tar sands. And that's a really important principled thing that I think should never really change in organizing is that, yes, people are impacted all along the, the chain, whether or not that's the refineries in Detroit or where, again, the refineries are in Richmond, California, and all these other places. But it's also really ensuring that the people that are there impacted by the issue happening are able to speak for themselves. And I think that's a direct nuance from that 20, 30 years ago of working with these NGOs. I think there's a really important thing, you know, that particularly in Canada, as we talk about reconciliation, that the organizations, we've asked them numerous times to work with our people in a way that's equitable and to really understand the power of Indigenous rights, the, the power that Indigenous people in Canada hold. And I think it's only through the Tar Sands campaign that people have really understood that because of all the lawsuits that we've been able to launch as First Nations at the Supreme Court level against the Canadian government or naming the Canadian government. And I think people really didn't get it until the last, I would say, five to six years. And even that, it's still very tertiary, where a lot of these NGOs are only working with us because they know that we can sue the government and that we really are the only people in Canada that can stop development. They're finally starting to understand that. But is it an equitable relationship? Not quite yet. We're still working on it. We still have some things to work out. And so it's a lot of hard work working with a lot of people that may not understand that or may have a much different outlook on the world. And it's challenging. And I think, like what I was saying earlier, like I'm getting older, I'm getting more set in my ways, and sometimes I might be a part of the problem. And that's something that I really, <laughs> I'm trying to work on checking myself. You know, I didn't realize that until I, I think probably Standing Rock, because sometimes I can be part of the problem. That was a big learning curve for me. But I think, you know, that's where I look to a lot of our young people that I hope are, are getting institutional memory of the work that we're, we've been doing and that we'll be willing to take steps further than the work that we've done in those last few years and that us as the older folks will play a role in supporting our leadership. And I think that's going to be really critical in moving forward. But in terms of these relationships with these NGOs and larger climate movement, it's just always difficult because I don't feel like 
a lot of times, and particularly when we're talking about the global stage and the international climate negotiations, there's a very small section of the climate negotiations that has kind of been opened up for Indigenous people, and we're trying to hold that space. But it's really difficult when folks that we work with at home or organizations that are international that, that might work in our territories don't necessarily always have our backs or will go with the status quo around certain things that are being negotiated on the floor in, say, Paris or Bonn or wherever these negotiations are happening. So it always makes our relationships really challenging. And like anything, we have arguments, we try and solve them, and we try and move forward. I think there's definitely some groups that 110% get it. We throw down for each other. We show up for each other. And I think that's the way our movements need to move forward is just continuing to build. And I think also really trying to work out the conflicts that we have with each other. And that's personally been a challenge for me. I'm really not good at that. I'm still learning how to, to, to navigate conflict or to apologize when I've done things that are wrong. And I think as organizations, we still have a lot of interpersonal work to figure out um, as organizations and as First Nations being able to, to, to work out some of these conflicts because it's difficult. And I think when we look at the process of colonization and, and we look at the way, like, Standing Rock is a great example. There was infiltrators. There was people there to cause conflict when we already might have had some of it, right? And so it's up to us to kind of rise above that. And to be honest with you, like, I think that's the thing that I want to reflect on about Standing Rock is the young people that were down there just showed such amazing leadership and such amazing courage, and they're doing all really amazing things. And I'm, I'm really proud to have met them and to know of them and to have worked with them here and there but just to watch them really flourish. And I think that's the thing that I I personally want to reflect on is that there are so many other young people that are like them that we just need to stand back a little bit and support them, but also model some good behavior, right? And and check ourselves and be better people because we owe it to them to do that. And so I hope I answered your question. I'm kind of a little bit long-winded today. My apologies. (laughs) I've loved it all. And I'm grateful for your detailed and thoughtful responses. It's really taught me a lot. You're really a beacon of light in a time that's really confusing and overwhelming. And it's been such an honor to have this time with you to go over all these different topics and really hear your perspective. It's been incredibly helpful and really interesting. So thank you so much, Heather. And um, yeah, sending you a lot of a lot of love and gratitude for who you are and how you show up in the world. Thanks so much for taking the time to interview me. And, and my apologies for being ultra long-winded today. <laughs> but it's been really great talking to you. Thank you for listening to For the Wild Podcast. I'm Ayana Young. The music you heard today was by Lobo Loco. The theme music is Silence Returns by Bo and Like a River from Kate Wolf. I'd like to thank our incredible production team, our producer and editor, Andrew Storrs, our research director and research assistant, Madison Magolski and Francesca Glassbell, our media director, Molly Lebov, 
and our music coordinator, Carter Lou McElroy. Thank you so much for tuning in, and please share your comments on iTunes if you haven't already. Thank you so much, and until next time. <laughs>